Tonight, we are continuing equip with our series of what we believe at Calvary Church. And the topic tonight, we're going to take a look at the purpose of the ministries of our church and how we as a church follow God's word in establishing those ministries. Um, we have a lot of ways here that we seek to share God's word, a lot of different ministries, a lot of opportunities that people have. No team's quite like what we saw in the video yet, but there are a lot of things we do to try to reach people. And I want to go ahead and have um, Donna go ahead and put up on the screen our belief statement in regards to ministry. We believe that we have a divinely called and scripturally ordained ministry that has been provided by our Lord for the threefold purpose of leading the church in evangelism of the world, worship of God, and building the body of saints being perfected in the image of his son. So that is the goal and purpose of our ministries. And tonight, Dan Shryak is going to come share more with us about this topic. And would you just help me welcome him tonight? Thanks, Jenny. If you've been here, um, as we've been going through this series, two weeks ago, Pastor Mark talked about the church, what we believe concerning the church. And, and he did a great job that night, but what that leads us to then is, well, so what? What, is, what are we as the church supposed to do? You just saw the statement of belief that, that Jenny read, and that's what we're going to talk about. And I want to start with talking a little bit about church organization. Now, the church is more than an organization, and I think we all agree on that. It is actually a living organism, and its head is Jesus Christ. If we read in Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 22 through 23, it says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. In fact, we are the body of Christ, the church is. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And there are a lot of scriptures that we've read in the past. And Pastor Mark touched on this two weeks ago, talking about how the church is actually the body of Christ in a, in a figurative sense. A lot of Christians may dislike the notion, especially I, I find us Protestants kind of dislike the notion of too much organization in a church. We tend to be less structured. But you have to admit that living organisms, which is what we are, have structure. And the church is no different. Now, if there's too much organization, it can stifle a church. And if there's too little, it can likewise stunt the church's growth. So the key is that Goldilocks zone, right? It's just right. It's what the goal is. The principle that we seem to see in the New Testament is that the church, um, in the New Testament church, the only organization necessary is that which is necessary for the ongoing life of the church. To put that in, in, this, in a simpler format... A church should only have as much organization as it really needs. I think we could probably say that about a lot of things. Some of you are probably sitting there thinking, wherever you work, that you have too much organization. You have a little more than you need. I mean, that just happens. It's, it's a common thing that uh, humans, we, we tend to complicate things, don't we? We do. But in building this structure, the early church seemed to focus on ministry. 
not positions. It focused on ministry. Jesus warned his disciples actually about seeking titles of honor and encourage them to instead serve others as he himself has served. And I want to read to you Matthew 23. This is the verses 8 through 12. And Jesus is talking to them, and he says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, yet those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is how Jesus wants us to approach what we would try to claim as titles for ourselves and for others within the church. See, the early church, instead of being um, organized around titles, it was organized around primary ministries. And I want to focus on that for a while and look at those. Let's go to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And this will be the main part of our text tonight. Let's start just with verses 8 through 11. Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 11, this is what it says. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. And that's what we want to talk about a little tonight. In verse 8, Paul is quoting from Psalms, Psalm 68, verse 18. And he's explaining that Jesus is the he that that scripture is talking about. And that he gave gifts to men. And the gifts that he gave are people. Those are the gifts that Jesus gave to men. They are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The image here, the imagery that the the psalmist was using when he wrote this is that of a conqueror. And a conqueror receiving tribute and plunder, and that's including slaves as well. And receiving those from those who he had defeated and then taking and distributing those to his soldiers and to other people. Jesus, Paul is saying, took people. He took people captive and he gave them as gifts to all of us, to the church. And that's not unlike in the Old Testament where God gave the Levites gave the Levites to the children of Israel, to the Israelites, as gifts to serve them. In the same sense, Jesus is giving these gifts to the church. So let's look at these. There are five categories, and let's, let's, let's dig into them a bit. The first one is apostles, the apostles. Now, the term apostle is apostolos, and it means a messenger. Um, it means one sent by somebody else. The apostles were literally commissioned messengers carrying out their sender's mission and backed by that sender's authority. Jesus first designated his 12 disciples as apostles. If we look in Luke, the the sixth chapter, the 13th verse, now Jesus had just spent the night, he said he spent the night on the mountain all night long praying, all night long seeking God. And it says, when morning came, in verse 13, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated as apostles. So they were 
the first apostles appointed directly by Jesus. This primary group of, of apostles is often referred to simply as the Twelve. Capital T, capital T, the Twelve. And these men were the ones who actually led the beginning of the church that has existed to this day. From Scripture, it seems pretty clear that the Twelve were a very limited group, and they were distinct from all the rest of Jesus' followers. In fact, it was so, um, so distinct that when Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ and died, later died, that they got together, the remaining 11 decided they had to replace his position. They had to refill his position because they had to maintain this core that Jesus Christ had established. Um, however, aside from the 12, there were other apostles that the scriptures talk about. The 12 um, who were given as gifts to the church, and then there were also others that included Paul and Barnabas and Andronicus and Junia, who were possibly relatives of Paul, of first of, of Barnabas and Paul. Uh, it refers to them in the book of Acts, in, in Acts 14, 14. It's talking about when they were at Lystra. And it was an interesting situation at Lystra. You know, there was a man that came to them who was crippled from birth, and Paul healed him. And the people, there, there was a temple to Zeus there, to the Greek god Zeus in Lystra, and they started calling it a miracle of the gods, not of the God, <laughs> the one true God, and, and actually the priests of Zeus came out, and he was going to have these sacrifices and all this stuff, and, 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 and it says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, then it goes on to tell the rest of the story. My point is that the writer of Acts, Luke, is calling both Barnabas and Paul apostles. In Romans 16, now this was written by Paul, in Romans 16, verse 7, he also talks about, as he's, as he's telling, um, giving instructions for greetings at the end of, the, of the, the letter, he says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So he's saying that these two people were also apostles. And the interesting thing is, Junia is a feminine name. We seem to think in our minds that apostles were strictly men. Junia is a, is a feminine name. And the idea was that if these two were together, just for, for reasons of good taste, they were probably married. They were probably husband and wife, these two, Adronicus, Adronicus and Junia. Paul describes how he became an apostle in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 through 9. And this is what it says. And last of all, he's talking about how Christ had appeared to the disciples and to other people and to the 500 and that. And he says, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, the ministry that this is referring to in, in Ephesians 4 the ministry, the apostolic ministry, had three distinct features. The first feature it had, the apostles were not selected by men. They were called by Jesus Christ and God the Father. In addition to what we just read, Paul talking about how he became um, an apostle, he also wrote in Galatians to the, to the churches in Galatia, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul He's talking about himself. Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor 
by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So that's the first distinguishing thing about the apostolic ministry and about the apostles. Number two, the next thing is that apostles were limited, though, limited to those who had heard Jesus, who had actually heard Jesus, or they were able to talk to those who had heard Jesus. This is mentioned in the account of selecting Matthias. Matthias is who was eventually selected to replace Judas. And in the book of Acts, the first chapter tells the story about how that happened, about them gathering together. And in Acts 1, verses 21 and 22, this is Peter talking to the 120 believers who had gathered in Jerusalem. And, and he's talking about, you know, how they have to replace Judas. And this is what he says. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. That was important. Beginning from John's baptism to the time Jesus was taken up, for one of these must become a witness with us of his revelation. So apostles were people who had heard from Jesus, or at least they had, as we learned from, from Paul's experience, access, or, or some of the others, access to people who had heard from Jesus. And the third point is, Apostolic ministry included signs and wonders and miracles. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul reveals this to, to us in 2 Corinthians 12. In the 12th verse he says, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. These are signs that must follow a true apostle, according to Paul signs and wonders and miracles. So the ministry of the apostle was involved in planting churches. And signs, miracles, and wonders were obviously very useful as we see throughout the book of Acts and, and actually as we learn through church history in establishing churches uh, as, as uh, in missionary endeavors. And this ministry is actually very similar today to pioneer missionaries who minister around the world and, and here in the United States through signs, miracles, and wonders. In a sense, uh, the office of the apostle was very unique. The passage we read concerning Paul earlier in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus appeared to him last and that Paul is the least of the apostles. Now, the passage, when you take the passage in totality, it appears to say that Paul was actually the last of the apostles. In fact, even when he talked about Andronicus and Junia, what did he say? They, they, they were following Christ long before he was. And Paul considers himself the last of the apostles. However, today, the title apostle is not used much, but God has placed the ministry of the apostle in his church. And that's important if we look in 1 Corinthians. This is Paul talking to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. This is what Paul says. God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. So in some way, the function of the apostle is still present. Even though we do not give people the title, we do have apostolic ministry taking the gospel into new lands and having ministries characterized by signs and wonders and miracles. Okay, let's go to the next one. The next thing Paul mentions in, in Ephesians 4.11 are prophets. Prophets in the New Testament were those who had a special ministry of inspired utterance. They were spokes, 
persons for God. And the prophets exercise an edifying ministry to the church, an edifying or a building up ministry to the church. We, we want to kind of think in our mind that a prophet is foretelling the future. And that is not the New Testament definition of what a prophet is. If we look in Acts 15, verses 32, um, it says, Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. This is when the delegation was sent from the church fathers in Jerusalem, and they went to Antioch. And uh, in that, in that group were men named Judas and, and Silas who were prophets. And you see what it says about them. In 1 Corinthians, it reaffirms this in the 14th chapter. And Pastor Mark has talked, as he's talked about the gifts of the Spirit, Pastor Mark has talked about the importance of prophecy and, and what New Testament prophecy is. And it says, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 14.3, let me give you the verse. 14.3 says, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. This was the ministry of the prophet, and this is the ministry of the prophetess today. Their messages were not ever to be considered infallible. They weren't. Um, but they are to be judged by the other members of the local church. In 1 Corinthians 14, there's more instruction about this in the 29th verse. It says, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. It also says in, in verse 32 of the same chapter, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. They just don't babble utterances that, that, that they, they can't control. That's not how it works. And finally, in 1 John, the fourth chapter, verse 1, John writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are true prophets. There are false prophets. And I think there are sincere people who have the gift of prophecy that maybe sometimes they just, in their excitement or whatever, enthusiasm haven't heard from God you know we've been trying to on our at our Sunday night services for the last the last three services give time for people who may have a prophetic word either for individuals or for the church and and what we've done to kind of get some structure to that is if you're in one of those services and you think God's giving you a word of strengthening or encouraging or comfort to bring it to Pastor Mark, to Pastor Paul, to somebody who is in the service and say, this is what I think God's telling us. And the reason we do that isn't to stifle the Holy Spirit or, or to, to quench the Spirit, but it's to make sure we're doing what John says, that we are testing the spirits to make sure they are of God. And if, if Pastor Mark, you know, he has had someone come up to him before, and Pastor Mark has just says, thank you, I'm going to receive that for myself, or I'm going to, I'm going to, pray about that and seek God about it, but we're not going to say it tonight. And we've had nobody offended, I, I don't think, have we, Paul, when you know, people have said that. Um, that's what we are trying to do on, on Sunday nights is to give more opening for us to start exercising the gift of prophecy and the gift of the prophet. Let's go on to the next one. The next one, gift that God gave to the church, evangelists. The evangelist is a bringer of good news. Another word for good news is the gospel. That's the evangelist. The evangelist, the evangelist ministry is to bring the gospel to those who have not yet heard it. 
This is kind of pertinent that the ministry of the evangelist overlaps with that of both the apostle and the pastor, which, which we haven't gotten to yet in the New Testament. Paul tells Timothy, for example, Timothy was a pastor. Paul tells Timothy that it is his responsibility as well. In 2 Timothy 4, 5, it says, But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of the evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And the work of the evangelist wasn't just for ministers, you know, the professionals. It wasn't just for them. There's actually a man in the New Testament who's, name was the evangelist. And that was a deacon. His name was Philip. So the term also applied to laypersons such as the deacon Philip. Philip exercised the ministry of evangelism, and he was actually referred to as Philip the evangelist. Now, I want to point out this is not the same Philip who was one of Christ's disciples, because Christ also had a disciple by that name. And so I want to make, I want to make that distinction clear. In Acts, the 21st chapter, it says, in the 8th verse, it says, Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Now, one of the seven that's referring to, um, it's referring to the deacons, and we're going to talk about deacons a little later, because there were initially seven deacons who were selected by the apostles. Philip was one of those seven. In the 8th chapter of Acts, it tells about Philip going to Samaria after the stoning of Stephen. And multitudes there believed in Christ, were saved, and were baptized. And it also describes how Philip evangelized with signs and wonders. And here's just an example from, from that chapter. And, and in Acts 8, 6 through 8, it says, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. In fact, the 8th chapter of Acts tells a lot about Philip's exploits and going from there and going towards Gaza and running into an Ethiopian and, and, and how he led him to Christ by explaining the scripture in Isaiah and actually got saved and they stopped the chariot and he, he, he got baptized right there on the spot. And just a great story about Philip. And you get, a, you get an understanding from the 8th chapter of Acts why Paul later called him Philip the Evangelist. This is something that I want, want us to make sure we understand applies to all of us because all of us are called to be evangelists. Whether we are evangelists by vocation or we have the title like Philip did or not, uh, we should all be doing, just as, just as Paul told Timothy, we should all be doing the work of the evangelists. Yeah? Okay. Now I want to go to the next one. The next one I want to talk about is pastor-teacher, and I first say that as a hyphenated term, the pastor-teacher. There's a lot of dispute about whether the terms pastors and teachers in this passage is referring to one office or one ministry, or it's referring to two ministries. You may have heard the terms before, five-fold ministry or four-fold ministry. Um, if you've heard those terms, usually the people that use those terms are talking about Ephesians 4, verse 11, and they're counting the ministries differently. And I got to tell you, I, you know, I, I, I tried to dig into this, and um, 
I found people talking very passionate and passionately and scholarly and intellectually about based on the Greek and how we see the Greek used in this time and in in, in this location and this is what we think and and come to to both conclusions. (laughs) Like really? They're looking at the same text and come to the conclusion that it's two offices or two ministries or one ministry. So I'm not going to answer that question tonight. I'm, I'm going to take the coward's way. And what I'm going to do instead is let's just talk about both of these ministries separately. Pastors and teachers. The term pastor can be and often is translated as shepherd. And I'm sure you've often heard that too. You've heard pastors referred to as shepherds. Now in the Middle East, shepherds filled many roles. They were watchmen. They stayed awake for any danger. They were guards who protected the sheep from attack. They were guides who led the sheep to food and water. And when necessary, they were caretakers who ministered healing to the sheep. God gives pastors as gifts to the church to fill all of those roles. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. In First Peter there's this little piece of First Peter in chapter 5 where he's talking about elders and, and overseers. And he says that when the chief shepherd appears, and this is in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 4, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade when the chief shepherd appears. He's talking about Christ. Pastors then, and you may have heard this term before, it's a peculiar term, I think, are considered under shepherds because there's a hierarchy. Christ is the chief shepherd pastors or under shepherds. They have the ministry and responsibility for caring for and and protecting God's flock. Especially, this is in the context of the local church. Pastors are in the context of the local church, not the church at large universal. And, And here's something else. They should also be worthy of their flock's imitation. Back to First um, Peter chapter 5, just a couple verses before what we just read. It says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Wow, no pressure there, huh? Can you imagine... If you were expected to live your life in front of an entire congregation so that they could, that they would be encouraged to look at you and imitate you as an example. Can you imagine that? Well, I want you to think about Pastor Mark in that context. And I hope that gives you another reason to pray for him and, and lift him up in prayer. Pastors are also called in the New Testament both elders and bishops. The term elder comes from a Greek word, presbuteros, from which, and I probably just butchered that, presbuteros is actually how it's said, from which we derive the English term presbyter. Now, the Jews called the ruler of their synagogue an elder, so it was quite natural for Christians as well to use that term uh, referring to who led their churches. There were specific qualifications for elders, and I'm not going to get into those tonight, but Paul designates what these are. He specifies these both in First Timothy and in Titus. Elders were spiritually mature men who were appointed or elected to their positions. Now, the word bishop 
was also used for those who were elders or pastor, and it comes from the Greek word episkopos, which literally means an overseer or a superintendent. In New Testament times, bishops had the ministry of a pastor in that they watched over a church, a local church. Now, today, there are denominations that use that term as a minister who actually oversees other ministers. And you, you can probably think in your mind denominations that you know that use that term. The New Testament term was the same as a pastor, though. The bishop was over a local church. So, the last term that Paul talks about in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 11, is teachers. Okay, this is the most straightforward one. There is no hidden meaning in the Greek text. A teacher is a teacher. It's those who teach. This harkens back to Jesus in the Great Commission, where he's telling us, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Some of the teachers were itinerant. Others functioned in the local church. The connection of the teacher to the pastor is really hard to miss, right? Because So this really speaks back to this notion of the hyphenated term, the pastor-teacher. Pastors must be able to feed their flock. In fact, the Old Testament word for a shepherd is one who feeds. However, while it doesn't seem possible to be a, peach, uh, a pastor and not be a teacher, if you think about it, it is feasible for a person to be a teacher but not a pastor. An example of this, and this is maybe a little bit exaggerated, think of a um, professor at a seminary you would definitely consider that person a teacher, but he may not be the pastor of a local assembly, right? So, it would seem then that pastors must be teachers as well, but teachers may not necessarily be pastors. That's how we understand the scripture. Teachers minister primarily to the saints, to Christians, helping God's people become firmly grounded in the faith. There are many churches, in fact, who have staff positions that they call teaching pastors that are separate from the pastor, right? If you remember Lee Strobel, a couple weeks ago, um, I guess it was three weeks ago maybe, uh, we, we saw the video with Lee Strobel talking about his movie, The Case for Christ. And Lee Strobel is just a brilliant man. Well, for 13 years, he was a teaching pastor at Willow Creek Community Church. And you got to admit, you, uh, you know, you listen to Lee Strobel speak for 10 minutes, and you realize this man really has the gift. And I believe he is one of these gifts to men that, 4.11, that Ephesians 4.11 talks about as a teacher. Another position I want to talk to you about or another ministry I want to talk to you about is actually not listed in Ephesians 4, chapter 11, but I, but I think it's germane to our discussion tonight, and that is the deacon. Um, deacons are not listed in the scripture we've read, but they are ministers and more, I guess in modern terms, is what we would consider lay ministers. We would call them lay ministers. In fact, the word deacon actually comes from a Greek word meaning to minister or to serve. That's where the term comes from. In Acts, the sixth chapter, it talks about how the first deacons were selected. There were seven of them, 
This is what I was referring to a, a while ago. We were talking about Philip, who was one of the seven. Um, this, these were these first um, deacons. And they were, they were chosen as servant leaders to oversee the church's ministry and practical needs of the people. So let's read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic, or the Greek-speaking Jews, among them complained against the Hebraic, or the Aramaic-speaking Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give, your, uh, give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And then it says, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands over them. So these are the first deacons that were selected. You know, they had a situation in Jerusalem where you had not only the Hebraic Jews who were from the area of Palestine and, and, and Jerusalem proper, but you also had the Hellenistic Jews. And it's probably oversimplification to say some spoke Aramaic and some spoke Greek because a lot of people spoke Greek in Jerusalem at that time. But the Hellenistic Jews probably refers more to those of the diaspora or the scattered Jews who had been scattered through the Greek-speaking lands because at that time, a lot of Jews felt that to be raised in the last days, you were going to be raised in Israel, in Jerusalem. So you didn't want to die as part of the diaspora scattered through the world. And, and they would come back to Jerusalem. And as such, there were a lot of widows of the Hellenistic um, Jews who were in Jerusalem. So there, there was quite a burden, quite a, quite a lot of work involved to provide for these. And it's very important for Jewish people to, to provide for widows. And, and I think those of you who read scripture, you understand that that's true, um, you know, for us as Christians as well. So this dispute rose and the apostles could not deal with these tasks and still devote themselves to prayer and to the word. So they appointed the deacons to do this work. The deacons served as helpers to the apostles and elders, especially in these practical matters, including taking care of the poor, the sick, and the weak. Just as with elders, though, there were qualifications for deacons. And Paul actually lists these in 1 Timothy, the third chapter, and we're not going to go through those right now. And like elders, deacons were also selected or elected to their positions. So, as I've already mentioned a couple times, I pointed out a couple instances of this. Some ministers have more than one type of ministry. And, a, for example, a pastor should be a teacher. We talked about that. Pastors should also do the work of the evangelist. We talked about that. Further, both ministries, ministers, I'm sorry, ministers and lay people can prophesy. First Corinthians, um, Paul encourages that, in fact. And it shows no strict boundary between clergy 
and laypersons. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 28-31. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. The point I want to make is that regardless of your status, if you're clergy or layperson, the professionals or the amateurs, I, I, it's kind of a crass way to say it, but, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Um, eagerly desire the greater gifts. In this manner, the church is somewhat egalitarian. We believe, we believe this very strongly, that any believer can be used for a specific ministry at any point in time. So, God gave these gifts to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the, preach, the pastors, the teachers. To what end? What is our purpose? Well, that's what Jenny read at the beginning of our lesson tonight. We believe that the church's greatest value, first of all, is found when these ministries that Paul lists function under the power of the Holy Spirit. And through these ministries, the Holy Spirit helps the church fulfill three main objectives. Each of these objectives is vitally important. Every local church, every local church should fulfill all three objectives. I don't believe that any church should say, well, this is really what we're all about and focus on one or two and leave out the others. In fact, I would say that anything that a church does, anything that we do as Calvary Church should tie back to one of these three things. And if it does not, we need to consider why are we doing it, right? So here's what they are. Evangelism, worship, and equipping. The first evangelism. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now this isn't just for ministers, okay? This is for everyone. Jesus also said in Acts, the first chapter, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That started in Jerusalem, right? We know that the church started there just the day of Pentecost. 3,000 believers were added to the church just a single day. And the church started there, but the church really didn't spread out that much right away. But when persecution struck, and it was, it was triggered by the death, or it began with the stoning death of Stephen. Uh, we see this in Acts chapter 8. Beginning with the stoning of Stephen, it says, lay people scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That was the second part, right, of what Jesus said. You'd be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. So this fulfilled that second part. And we've already talked about how effective Philip was in that process. Um, he was remarkably uh, effective, but he was just one of many believers. It says that all the believers except the apostles fled Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. See, but Jesus instructed us, his disciples, and, 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 and in essence all of us, to go beyond Judea and Samaria. He told them to make disciples of all nations. 
and that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we know from the book of Acts, and we know from church history, that the apostles took the gospel to a huge swath of the known world, the known world at that time. And ever since that time, his church, the church of Jesus Christ, has been doing that. We've been evangelizing. And it's our job and our duty today to continue that work evangelizing at home and abroad. Second purpose, or second objective, is worship. In John, the fourth chapter, 23rd and 24th verse, Jesus is talking in the book of John to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he says, Yet a time is coming and is now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So another objective of the church is to provide a setting for, for Christians to come together and worship corporately. Now, while there's a great deal of freedom in that, Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians, if you read through chapters 12 through 14, that things are always, always to be done appropriately and in order. But that is the second objective of our church. And third, equipping the third objective of the church is the task of building up believers into mature saints. In fact, the stated reason for the various ministries of Ephesians 4 being given as gifts to the church is this. We're going to read on now from what we read earlier, starting with the 12th verse. To equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That is what our, our equip strategy is all about. It's helping all people become mature followers of Christ. And it comes about through preaching, through teaching, through Bible study, and through one-on-one -on -one mentoring by various ways. Let's look quickly at what this includes. The first thing it says in this scripture, in this passage, is works of service. This is how the body of Christ is built up. It's not by the vocational ministers, but by all of God's people, the entire body of Christ doing works of service. We are all called, every one of us, to do this, to unity in the faith. This is not unity in that we simply get along but this is, we are united in the faith of Jesus Christ, a people with one heart, a people with one mind, and a people with a shared calling. In unity, in the knowledge of the Son of God. That means that in this unity, we both share and believe and know the doctrines of Christ. As part of what we've been doing on Wednesday nights since, uh, since January, is teaching what we believe, understanding so that we have some unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And finally, maturity. Paul writes in this passage that we become mature when we attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
the whole measure. The model for us then, the goal that is set before us is the life of Christ himself. That's our model. And as we start approaching this, as we start attaining this goal, Paul paints this picture, and it's beautiful. He paints this picture of stability, this picture of people speaking the truth in love, this picture of a body of believers joined tightly together, growing together with everyone doing their part of the ministry. It's not a beautiful picture. I think it is. When I think of our church and sing it in that, in, in that picture, I think it's a beautiful thing. It's a perfect plan. Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, supported by deacons, to accomplish that plan. This is the ministry God has given us his church.